Like I feel really disconnected from a lot of things I read. And it's really rare for me to just go, oh, that book just really got me, you know, sort of yeah. was one of my motivations to write was to really just get the world I wanted to read. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to Rights for Women. I've just finished recording a fabulous chat with Josephine Moon. Jo writes fiction and non-fiction, but mostly fiction, they're warm-hearted, contemporary mashups of uplit and foodie-lit, or foodie fiction, as Joe likes to call it. Stories about life, love, careers and food, sometimes set in Australia, sometimes overseas, and always with a great feel-good vibe. Joe's novels are published internationally and her collective sales are approaching a quarter of a million. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? She describes her novels as books like chocolate brownies, rich, inviting, a treat for the soul, but with chunky nuts to chew on. I love that. And a dash of sea salt that lingers on the tongue. She's written seven fiction books and two non-fiction books, including The Tea Chest, Three Gold Coins, The Cake Maker's Wish, and her last book, which came out in 2021, The Jam Queens. When I say last, I mean her most recent book. Uh, jo lives in Noosa, on the hinterland of, uh, of Noosa in Australia, with her husband, son, and a tribe of animals that, despite her best intentions, seems to expand every year. So Joe and I have quite a few things in common, one of them being our love of animals, in particular horses, which we chat about in the podcast. Last year, in, on March 26, 2021, Jo came out as autistic. It's an experience she describes in her podcast that she started Autist in Residence, which is such a great name, as terrifying. The diagnosis has made a lot of sense of things that have happened in Jo's life, and she's made it part of her mission to share her journey with the world in the hope of helping others. Jo's someone I've been wanting to have on the podcast for some time, so when I was planning this year's schedule, she was top of the list, and it's been so lovely to spend the last hour or so chatting to Jo about so many things, largely about her autism. I was really curious to find out how she feels that has impacted on her writing, on her creative process, how the diagnosis and the coming out has impacted on her life as a writer and, and her life as a woman. And, of course, we talk about her books. Another little fantastic accomplishment that she achieved last year as part of her research for the Jam Queens. So I'm not going to spoil that. I'll let you find out all about that. So thank you for listening. I hope you love this interview with Joe Moon and I'll be back next week with another fabulous guest on Rights for Women. Thank you so much, Joe Moon, for joining me on Rights for Women. And, you know, we were just chatting and we're going to be talking quite a bit today about your new identity. Uh, yeah. You've been diagnosed with autism, uh, but also, of course, about your writing journey and 
I thought we might actually start with that for people who maybe aren't familiar with you and your writing. If you could tell us a little bit about basically how you came to be a writer and how you got to be where you are now with it all. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for having me on. It's, it's really lovely. I, you know, I see you on Instagram all the time. And of course, we have this lovely shared connection with horses and everything, which is it's really yeah. lovely. So yeah, it's, um, I'm sure we could do an hour's chat just on horses. Actually. I'm sure. So. But- <laughs> horses are on my list to ask you about too. Oh, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favourite subject. So that's good. So as far as writing goes, I, I think like most writers, I was a, a huge reader as a child. And so, you know, Ian Blyton and um, Elaine Mitchell's Silver Brumby was a huge mm. inspiration for me and, you know, had me just hooked as a reader. And I wrote my first novel when I was nine, which is all about horses. And I don't know, it had sort of always been with me, I think, but I sort of had a f- couple of false starts in terms of uni. Like I thought I wanted to be a vet. I now know that there's no way I could have been a vet because I just would never, I'd just be crying constantly and just way <laughs> too emotional. And I'm quite needle phobic, you know, when you have horses, you end up having to give injections, you know, yeah. for various things. And I'm always just like, oh man, I just I hate this. So that could never have happened. And then I sort of pursued environmental science and then there were loads and loads of statistics and that. And I was like, me and statistics, just never going to get on. And so at that point I had to really reassess what on earth I was doing. And I sort of thought, I seem to be good at this writing gig. Maybe I should be looking in that area. I mean, in hindsight, someone somewhere should have been offering, like in, when I was at school, there was no kind of people sitting you down and going, well, let's have a look at what you're good at, what you're not, what you're interested in. It was just like, oh, pick some courses off your QTAC form and off you go. And it was sort of yeah, hope for no the real guidance. And so I then pursued journalism and film and media and went on from there. I then became an English teacher. And in my first year teaching English I, and film and TV, I just knew I, didn't, I couldn't be a teacher forever. And I went and did a course with the Queensland Writers' Centre. This was pre you know sort of internet stuff so it was Mm. very much in person and I was just I came away just going this is it this is what I need to do I need to be a full-time writer and the funny thing about I think about that now is that sort of the reasons I became a writer or wanted to be a writer are sort of challenged constantly now so the appeal then was very much I can stay at home. I don't have to talk to people. I can oh, write and yes. go into my own little world. I can be really sort of a bit of a recluse. And, of course, now that's just not the case. You're sort that's of right. expected to be constantly on social media, on podcasts, and, in, you know, out doing things around, obviously not in the past couple of years with COVID around, but, you know, normally beating the pavement and doing lots and lots of face-to-face mm-hmm. stuff and really high energy stuff that really drains me, which we might circle back to later, I think. But, yeah, yeah, that's kind of how it just started. But I started writing and I wrote and wrote and I wrote 10 manuscripts in about 12 years and couldn't really work out what sort of writer I wanted to be. And when I finally sort of worked that out, I wrote the T-test and it was picked up and given a two-book deal pretty quickly. So it happened slowly and then really fast at the end. Yeah, that's often the case, isn't it, that story? People think, oh, you know, you were so lucky you had got a debut book out, but there's so much work that goes behind that. (laughs) That's right. There's nine dead novels behind it, you know. (laughs) So were you teaching all that time, Jo? Were you working as a teacher? The sum of it. So I wrote while I was working full-time and I wrote part-time and I wrote casually and I I did a lot of jobs. And it's something that I've learnt through my autism diagnosis actually is I've sort of had four big careers in my life for very distinct careers and I have actually burnt out of every one of them and I now know that that is actually really classically 
a classic experience for an autistic person that you just burn out completely of what you're doing and you try something else hoping that that one yeah. will work and then it doesn't and you've been out of that and you sort of go on this cycle. So, yeah, I've done a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Mm. So what was it like when you had that, got that first book contract? To be honest, I was really in shock. I was massively in shock. I really found it hard to process that because I had been working for so long. I'd had over 100 rejections. I used to keep a spreadsheet and I let it go when I got to 100. Yeah. I just find that's depressing. And which I know sounds a lot, right? But I'd been writing for 12 years. So that's sort of, yeah, you know, yeah. it's spread out over those 12 years. It's not quite as terrible as it sounds but and it's it's, it's not bad. unusual either it's that's not an unusual story is it for no. writers yeah. and back then too you were still having to print out entire manuscripts and post them off and send the return delivery and you know that come yeah. back in the mail these big things addressed to you and you'd be like oh damn that's a manuscript that's come back and so it was a lot more heart-wrenching and expensive as well but I forgot what we were talking about we do this oh just what this. it was like to get that first contract <laughs> yes. yeah so um it was really, really in shock because I, by that point, I would have given my novel away for free. I didn't have no expectations on it at all. I just wanted it completed and have completed its journey, which is you write so someone reads it, right? So yeah. just that's why you write. So I wanted that cycle to be complete and that was my highest goal and I had no idea that this was an actually commercially successful book that people would want and want more of. So it was really gobsmacking to me. Mm. Like, the whole thing was it, I just couldn't believe that it was real and then they gave me you know two book deal and I didn't have a book written and then that's the whole massive pressure in itself and so yeah it took took a really long time to sort of come to grips with that and not sort of you not keep waiting for it all to fall over I guess yeah it's a big adjustment isn't it it's a massive change in life so especially after you say having those you know worked for 12 years on 10 books and then all of a sudden you bang where's your next book you know we want to publish it and when it finally happened I had a six-week-old baby and I was like are you serious like this thank you universe (laughs) (laughs) the timing was like I'm really grateful but holy smokes you know so those first sort of five years of my career were just so hard such a hard Mm. slog with a little person and How, we were renovating houses and moving houses and oh, all this sort of, of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. How long ago was that, Joe? So I got my agent uh, and offers in 2012, and my first book came out in 2014. Right. Okay. So you've had about you've had seven books published. Is that right? I've got uh, seven novels and two non-fiction novels. books. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'm Great. just working on my eighth novel now. Oh, that's good. Perfect. <laughs> we'll have a chat about that one hopefully a little yeah. bit later. So as we were talking at the beginning, you know, when we first started chatting, last year in March, I believe, 2021, you were diagnosed with autism. Correct. Can you tell us about getting to that point in your life and and how that diagnosis came about for you? Yeah. So it should have, it really should have come about five years earlier when two other members of my family were diagnosed with autism. And when you go through that process, family members are asked, whether you're a child or an adult, your family members are asked to fill in forms reflecting on your kind of characteristics and that kind of thing. So I'd filled out all these forms and I went back with my family to the psychologist and said every single thing in this, in particularly in the sensory processing difficulty part of the chart, so sensory processing is things like being stressed by loud noises, funny little bits inside your socks, the textures of food, the textures of, you know, wind, 
noises. I'm always the little per- the person running around going, what is that noise? What is that noise? No one else can hear it but me. I, you know, it took me to literally last year to realise that other people couldn't hear lights humming. Where oh, wow. I just thought everybody could hear that and because it would drive me crazy, you know, num- uh, lights humming and I didn't realise <laughs> That's actually unusual. So I went back and I said, I am ticking everything in this section. And she sort of gave me a really hard look and she said, well, your eye contact's too good. You're not autistic, which is a ridiculous thing to say because you can't, one, not every autistic person struggles with eye contact. Mm. Two, eye contact is a learned behaviour. So whether it's comfortable or not, a lot of us can do it because that's what we're expected to do. So you can play the game, basically. doesn't mean that it's you know, a good thing. So I have to, I had to work through a lot of anger about that, actually, that I could have had answers five years previously mm. if that person had actually known more and been more on the ball. And then three years later, we had a psychologist visiting our house, doing a home visit for someone, and <laughs> she just kind of casually dropped in the middle of the lounge room that she considered me a high-functioning autistic. And I was like, what? Just what out of the blue. Talking? Just like out of nowhere. And... And that was sort of the end of the conversation. And I was left just going, what the hell? Like, this just, I don't understand this. And then I sort of ran it past another a psychologist I was seeing at the time for grief processing, grief counselling. And I said, this is what's happened. It's really shaken me up. Um, and we sort of talked through some things. And she said, well, I, she said, look, I don't, I don't specialise in autism, which should have been the first clue. And, but I would... I, I would say, from what you're saying, that you have a social communication disorder, at which point I was like, now I feel so much worse. I feel yeah. just like this big. And I kind of just shut down on that then for mm. a couple of years. And eventually I just I felt like it's just been bugging me, you know, for a couple of years. And I thought, one, I need I want it resolved for myself. And two, I feel like I owe it to other members of my family to have this information or not. Because mm. um, that makes a big difference to how you relate to people. Uh, if you know that you've got the same kind of neurotype or not, is is yeah. a big deal. Yeah. So I found some uh, a group that specialise in diagnosing female autism or autism in women. Mm. Uh, women women assigned female at birth anyway. Let's say that because there's a whole range of yeah. you know gender diversity in there that yeah. can get yeah confusing as well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's kind of how it happens, basically. And it's a long wait list. Wait lists are huge. And it was a long process. It was, you know, big, long interviews, tons of paperwork. Mm. But that's where we got to. Mm. Yeah. And And by the time I got to the final, sorry, by the time I got to the final sort of, you know, I'm going to give you back my findings, I I was like, at this point, I'd be surprised if you said I was autistic. I'd be surprised if you said I wasn't. You know, I just... Because I had no, I had no idea by that point, and yeah. then she said, well, "Congratulations, you're autistic," and I was like, "You're kidding!" <laughs> what? <laughs> but then when she sort of started explaining things, and we started talking through things like, you know, the burnout cycles and things like that, and I was like, "Oh man, this just explains my entire life." And wow. it was, it's been a lot, you know. It's only, it's only ten months. I say it's only ten months, and it, you know, to still daily things pop up in my head where I go, ah. That's what that was, you know. That's okay. what that thing that happened in year five was all about. It's it's a long at this age at forty five. It's a lot of processing. Yeah, to sort of yeah. Reevaluate okay. everything. 
So has it been a relief in a way for you to have absolutely diagnosis? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, I know, I, you know, I've always known I'm different that I just don't think like other people that I feel really alone. I feel wrong. The thing, the, the, the sad thing is when you grow up not knowing that you are autistic, you spend your whole life being told that you're wrong. You're always getting things wrong. You're doing things wrong. You're saying things wrong. And according to other people, yeah. you're not actually because yeah. you're just fine. There's just a cultural communication problem between, you know, neurodiverse people and neurotypical people. But so you just grow up thinking it's you the whole time. Mm. There's something wrong mm. with me. something wrong with me. Why can't someone tell me what's wrong with me? What's, you know, so it's a lot of, a lot of negative self-talk for decades. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, it must be a lot to process in, in, a, yeah. in a positive and, I guess, yeah. a more negative way, like you say, reflecting back on experiences that have yeah. left, you know, a bit of a scar, I guess, on you in some ways and then. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. Absolutely. And But the other the other bonus then is that you, you find, and this is what I didn't expect, was when you, you tap into this massive online community of other neurodiverse people mm. and suddenly you see yourself everywhere and for the first time you're like oh that's me that's me that's wow. me and you're like I'm actually I'm normal I'm a normal neurodiverse person yeah you know, I'm not wrong I'm completely right neurodiverse yeah. person and I see myself everywhere and you feel connected and you found your your neurokin is the word neurokin. I love that neurokin. yeah yeah and that's the beauty I guess of the internet now isn't it you know like 20 years Absolutely. ago or whatever, how many years ago, people didn't have access to all that yeah. information and those connections. So exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's great for that. Yeah. So Joe, can you explain to, to lay people like myself in neurological terms, what is autism? And, and there are a lot of myths around about autism too, aren't there? Maybe if you could tell us some of those and, and bust them for us. Wow. Yeah. So many, I don't even know where to start. So first of all, what it is, I mean, that depends who you talk to, <laughs> um, but at, at its core, it's a neurotype. So mm. basically it's like having a different operating system. It's like having a Mac versus a Windows operating uh. system in your brain. So there's nothing wrong with a Mac and there's nothing wrong with a Windows mm. system. They just operate differently, but they won't talk to each other. <laughs> so that's yeah. kind of where you're at so it's there from birth it is not it's not something that you acquire via vaccine that's one of the myths it's not yeah. something you you know get any other way it's it's genetic there's very strong genetic markers as uh genetic races going on all around the world trying to identify the full spectrum of the genetic matching codes yeah and you know there's a lot of questions about that as to whether that's a good thing or not but basically, if you think about, you know, if anyone has done science, biology, you know that the strength of an ecosystem is based on its diversity. The more diverse an ecosystem is, the stronger it is. Farmers would know this. If you monocrop, and you know, entirely and something yeah. comes out and your wheat is susceptible to whatever and you lose your entire crop, then obviously you've lost everything. But if you mm. have a diverse, you know, farming arrangement, you might lose your wheat, but you've kept your pumpkins and your oranges and everything yeah. else, right? So this, the more diversity we have, the stronger we are and the healthier we are. So there are very, very old genes that go back thousands of years to do with autism. It's always been around. So it, what that means, though, is that we, autistic people tend to have particular struggles, and I think more and more in the modern world because there's so much more coming at us all the time. Yeah. 
um, so much less downtime, so much less ability to process. Leonie Dawson, who is a, she's an entrepreneur and artist online, she's big online, does a lot of e-courses. I heard her describe it one day as like, you know, we, we're really exhausted <laughs> a lot of the time. And the, the problem is it's like trying to upload or download a 12 kilobyte photograph versus a 24 megabyte photograph. So we take in the 24 megs of everything around us all the right. time. So all the little details, all the sensory stuff. And it's you take it all in and then you somehow have to get rid of it all at the end of the day as well. And that's mm. a lot harder and a lot slower than 12 kilobytes. Of, yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah no, it um, does. They're, they're great, great ways of describing it. Yeah, I liked that one when I heard it. In terms of the myths, people still believe that only boys have autism, just out and out wrong. I think the most dangerous myths are that autistic people lack empathy, just out and out wrong. There's so much research to show that autistic people can make amazing therapists, psychologists, nurses, mm. etc., because they actually have very, very high levels of empathy. And a lot of us have hyper-empathy, which I do as well, which actually just kind of means that we feel everyone's right. stuff all the time. Yeah. And, you know, like for me, I, like I really feel animals' pain. And so if, if something flicks through my social media feed that's got some sort of animal in distress on it, like that can mm. floor me for the rest of the day like because I just can't let go of the pain yeah. of that, that image or that situation, for example. So a lot of us have hyper-empathy. There's still, there's still a myth out there that autistic people don't feel pain, which is a super dangerous. Now, having said that, autistic people can have different reactions to pain and sometimes that's hypersensitive and sometimes it's hyposensitive. So sometimes, right. you know, they can be a bit like, oh, it's a bit of a twinge and there's actually an appendicitis or, right. you know, you've <laughs> bumped something but suddenly your whole arm's on fire with pain, you know. So you can be sort of hyper or hyper, but it's certainly yeah. not, it's just such a dangerous myth. It's just mm. so, there's a myth that obviously vaccines cause autism, just wrong. There's a myth that, you know, everyone's on a linear scale. So you're very autistic at this end, you're not very autistic at that end. And really it's much more of a different days and different times. And depending on your environment, you can move your ability to, you know, focus, concentrate, participate, take care of yourself, changes from day to day, depending on what's going on. Some people still say autism is the extreme male brain. Again, just wrong. Um, <laughs> I haven't heard that one. <laughs> just wrong. Again, and this harks back to the fact that people used to think only males had autism. Yeah. You know, the idea that all, everyone's on the spectrum somewhere, they're not. You're either actually on the autistic spectrum or you're not. When we talk about the spectrum, we're talking about the diversity of the autistic community. So that's mm. a big one to understand is not everyone, every autistic person is different. There's just as much variety in the autistic community as there is in the neurotypical community. Yeah. So, gosh, there's lots. Yeah. Go on. yeah Someone just said to me today, she, re- she, she listened to one of my podcasts that I did on autism, and she said, oh, you've got such a lovely speaking voice. I guess, well, you know, slays that myth that, Autistic people have monotone voices. I was like, oh, yes, there's that one too. But oh, add that to the list. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah, there really are, aren't there? And, and I've listened to a few episodes of your podcast, Joe, and you address a lot of this in there too, which is great. Mm, um, the, the myth you were mentioning, and it's come up a couple of times as we've been chatting, is this idea that only boys or men get autism and interestingly I was just last night you know flicking through the news thing on my phone and an article came up on ADHD and it was exactly the same myth that women you know can't have ADHD or or don't have it and so many more women now are also being diagnosed with 
ADHD, you know, as adults. So is this because of, you know, the testing that was done? Like where does, where does all that come from? So the best book to read for this is a book called Neurotribes by Steve Silberman. It's a really famous book. It's been around for a few years now. I read it. I have the hard copy, but I, I listened to it on audio because it's a tome. It is a big, big book. And it goes through the whole history, basically, of autism from the 1930s up to today, essentially. And it is, it is horrifying in so many parts as to just how mind-blowingly badly autistic people have been managed, treated mm. and mistreated and experimented on and all these horrendous things that have happened in history. It also explains so much of, of where, why we are where we are today. And so... If you read that book, autism was first kind of coined by Hans Asperger. So a lot of people would have heard of Asperger's syndrome. Yep. So years ago, I would have been called somebody with Asperger's syndrome, which was essentially considered high-functioning autistic. So Hans Asperger studied, so he was an Austrian pediatrician. He studied mostly very young white Austrian boys and um. created profiles and tests based on young white Austrian boys and those tests kind of kept being used over and over and over again for decades and decades and decades and it really wasn't until female psychologists and female (laughs) doctors started Mm. getting sort of a bit more involved with this from about the 60s on that things started to shift a little bit but it is only been to my knowledge in the past five or six years that we've had female specific testing Right. So um, there's a great group in Australia called Reframing Autism. They talk about, there's a lot of type psychologists will talk about female autism. or fra- Reframing Autism talk about it as internalised autism. So this idea that our old stereotypes and understanding of autism are based on externalised presentations. So those, those stereotypes that you've seen on TV, movies, um, maybe shouting, headbanging, you know, mm. uh, Rain Man, Rain Man stuff. comes to mind. Yeah, Rain Man is, yeah. uh, and then and then Rain Man sort of put out this idea that everyone was a savant as well. Like that's you know, right, yep. which is very rare, and and you see that a lot on TV too, like Criminal Minds, and you know, yeah. So they say it's more like internalized because some boys can have that sort of more internalized presentation, and that's more of shutdowns, right. uh, losing your words, freezing, uh, that sort of. Yeah, just shutting down mm. rather than, ex- mm. than a kind of explosive sort of uh, presentations. Yeah. So, and I mean, and then there's just a, a male medical bias. And this is a really known, well-known thing, you know, up until really recently, medications were only tested on male rats, never female rats, because, gosh, female rats had hormone cycles. We don't want to deal with that. So we'll just, <laughs> we'll just test male rats. And so women are just considered to be little versions of men with strange hormone things, but we'll just ignore them and we'll give them all the medicine we tested on males. You know, like even my husband, who's a physio, said one day a lecturer or someone said they used to have, you know, joints like hips and knee joints, but there were only ever male hips and knee joints. And then someone sort of had to go, females actually have different bodies. We might need female hip and knee joints. Like, you know, like it just goes on and on and on and on. So it's all kind of wrapped up in all of that. Yeah. Thankfully, we're making so much progress in these ways. I mean, things that should have changed years and years ago, but yes. now there is so much more progress in that area, isn't there? It's great. 
There is. It is. Mm. A little slow awareness. There's good progress yeah. being made, but it is, it's exciting and it's frustrating less slow at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I can mm. understand. So when you were diagnosed, Joe, you did make the decision, you know, you came out publicly in a, a blog post, you've got your podcast and everything about autism. How was that for you publicly coming out with, you know, I've got autism? Yeah, it was terrifying, actually. But I guess there'd been, you know, a bit of a lead up to that, which was once I had my identification, I practiced coming out on, you know, obviously the people closest to me to see and I was well prepared for some negative responses and from what I've read online that's pretty typical people get some pretty full negative responses and I think largely because everybody's been sort of saturated in a very negative view of autism so Mm. they're sort of I don't know they don't want Mm. you to be autistic we can't be autistic well they've done something wrong if you're autistic or you know like there's just there's a whole bunch of stuff there so I sort of practiced on people and it was really exhausting and so I eventually I decided that Mondays would be coming out Monday. <laughs> so every Monday I would practice on someone. And some people are told in person. And then I was like, this is exhausting. And so some people I emailed, some people I did by phone, some people I texted. And then eventually that day that I put that post up, I, I had no plans to do it. I literally just woke up with this enormous, it's kind of a writing pressure actually. You probably feel like there's like a story in you that just has yeah to get out and you have to sit down and write it right then. It was a bit like that. I have to write this down or it's it never going to get. Yeah, I'm, I can't move on until this is yeah. done. But it was terrifying and I couldn't look at the post for a really long time. I really expected some negative kickback, some trolls, some all sort of, and I, but I didn't. I didn't get anything. I still expect it will come my way, but yeah. uh, the internet being what it is. But I didn't. Everyone was really, you know, really lovely. Yeah. And I had, I had previous to that, I had I had come out to my publisher and my agent as well, right? Um, much earlier than that, and sort of because I'd been having, I was in a bit of, a, I was in a big burnout phase. Was, and I was, was that around the time that Jam Queens came out? Was it around that yes. time? Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, so you had a lot going I was, on. It was a mess at that point. Yeah, and I was really just like, I need out of this. I can't do this anymore. I, need, I, I felt like I needed to quit, but I, once I had that knowledge. I knew how I could help myself. I, I could mm. find a way through it. So that, I mean, mm. that, you know, that identification really probably saved my career there. That's amazing. So what steps have you taken to prevent or, you know, to ease that feeling of burnout and to enable you to continue with your writing, for instance? You know, I guess yeah. how have you learned to manage the autism? It's very much an ongoing process. And, of course, COVID doesn't make it any easier because one of the things we autists typically do not like is changes to routine and disruption to plans and I'm no different and so it feels like every single day something changes something's different school's not going back now whatever it is and it just just really messes with my head and so I really I find it extremely difficult to write unless I have kind of the perfect conditions to write so which means I need everyone out of the house Preferably, you know, I need to be in my room, my earbuds in my ears with mm. soothing music going on to create a bit of a, you know, barrier to the outside yeah. world. A cocoon. And yeah, I do. And I need my chai and I need whatever. And I just don't deal well with um, being able to hear, you know, if the child's home and TV's on. And I need to be able to leave my room and walk and get a cup of tea and come back again without somebody going, Mom, can I have whatever? Or, or do you know where my car keys are? Or, you know, whatever it is. That just sort of 
So I'm really high needs in that respect. And so I haven't really done very well about that, I don't think. Yeah. The thing I have done well, which sort of was one of the real sticking points at the time that this all happened, was I was in contract negotiations at the time. And every time I spoke to Alex, my agent, about two months, I was just crying. I was just sitting there crying constantly. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't do a book a year. I can't go touring, book a year. You know, you know if you're a book a year, you're writing your editress, you're yeah. publicising, you're social mediaing, you're doing all this stuff. And I just can't do it. It splits my focus in too many ways. I don't have the energy to do it. But publishers, that's what they want. Yeah. And I don't like letting people down and I don't like reneging on commitments. But I ended up having to. I ended up just saying, you know what, I can't. Can't write a book a year, just can't. Yeah. So that's taken a lot of pressure off, definitely. Oh, good. I don't yeah. have a book coming out next month, will be month after, which I sort of normally would. And I'm so relieved about that. That would be just not what I need right now. So that's made a huge difference. How that plays out in terms of sales and whatnot, I have no idea, mm. but I couldn't sustain it the way it was yeah. going. Yeah. And I had, I mean, I had terrible tendonitis. Tendonitis and illness for three years. It's still there, but I'm, I'm sort of functionally typing now. Like it just, my body was breaking down. Everything was breaking mm. down. So, yeah, I guess that's the biggest one at the moment was just, let's yeah. just slow this right. Slow down. down. Slow down. Yeah. Mm. What about in terms, Joe, of your sort of creativity, writing process, that sort of thing? Like when you think back before you knew, that definitely that you were autistic and then even now post the diagnosis, how mm. do you think that that having autism impacts on that aspect of your life, your creativity and your writing in terms of your imagination and actually creating stories and things like yeah. that? I guess, I guess probably nothing has changed except that I can now see things. So I now know, for example, that autistic people are well known for having hyper-focusing abilities. So if we get the thing that we're passionate about, you can you do not stand in our way. If that writing train turns up, it's like this thing needs to be written right now, I have to write that thing right now. And that's, you know, so that's good in terms of productivity if you can just get everything out of the way and just yeah. ride that hyper-focus. That's brilliant. It also means you can be highly distracted or hyper-focused in a totally <laughs> different area. Like, I don't know, somehow now I need to plant acres of flowers out and my gut you know like yeah I can get totally distracted doing that too but at least I can sort of (laughs) notice it now and know what it is and rather than going I've got this great new idea and it could be amazing and no it's actually it's just a brief hyper focus thing and it'll pass in a week's time I think it's interesting now writing at the moment because I, I'm kind of second-guessing myself a little bit in the sense that I, I write things. So one of, the feed, one of the pieces of feedback I've always gotten with my books is, you know, I love your description. You've got so much description, etc. Now, not everyone's a description person, pe- mm. person, so some people don't like that. Other People who love it really love it, and I really love yeah. it. Like, I'm a big world builder, so it's really important to me to build really detailed worlds. And now I sort of write things and I go, that's a really autistic way of writing. Like that, that's uh, what we love. Like we're judging yourself with that. Yeah. Like I sort of yeah. go, that's what autistic people love. We love detail. We love all that sensory stuff's massively important, or like all of that that I sort of fill my books with. And then now I'm kind of going, I don't know, maybe near, you know, not many people are autistic. So the majority of my readers and the typical readers, maybe they don't want to read this stuff. So now I'm kind of uh, going, uh, oh that's hard. God. That's how really much do I put in? 
Yeah, it is. I don't. I really yeah. don't know. I'm sort of going to have to rely a bit on editors. I mean, at the same time, I kind of go, well, I've written seven books. They've all yep. done pretty well. Clearly something connects somewhere. But I do think I will never be the person who has that big runaway success because I don't connect with enough people's brain types to write the thing that they want to read. And it's kind of why I wrote my first book because I couldn't find a book that I really wanted to read. Like I feel really disconnected from a lot of things I read and it's really rare for me to just go, oh, that book just really got me, you know, sort of was one of my motivations to write was to really just get the world I wanted to read. So I know that I'm never going to be that sort of mass, mass seller. So, you don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm still very much trying to figure that stuff out and... um, but, yeah, but then I kind of go at the moment I'm writing a book that's got autistic characters in it. Um, I'm going to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sort of going, well, this is the way they think, then surely we need to write it that way. But then maybe people don't want to read it. So I don't know. I am, I'm feeling yeah. very confused about that. At the moment. Well, you're at, you, I think you said you're at second draft stage too, didn't you? which is, is a massive second-guessing yourself type stage yeah, as well. Yeah, I think so too, yeah. And I'm kind of looking at the first quarter and going, about that and the rest of it's kind of which is pretty normal for a second draft and I'll just send it to my publisher and she'll probably tell me what like you know you first quarter yeah. is terrible and I'll go I know it is it always is and then it yeah. sort of improves so yeah it is it is a tricky phase where you're just kind of going oh god I don't know. it's great to have like, maybe ask me two, two books down <laughs> yeah yeah but at least you've got that trusted editor and you've already got that relationship with your publisher mm. and and that will will be great support for you yeah, for sure. Yep. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about your next book. Can you tell us anything about it or is it a little bit too soon to reveal much? That's probably a little too soon. Yeah. 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 We'll, we'll keep that one on the back burner. No, that's <laughs> all right. No, no, I don't want to intrude. That's fine. But The Jam Queens was your most recent book, which mm. came out this time last year. Just for people who might not have heard of that, tell us a little bit about The Jam Queens and what that's all about. So the Jam Queens is about a family of Jam Queens, like competitive jam makers in the Barossa Valley in South Australia. And uh, it's three generations of women. It's actually four generations of women, really, uh, from the one family who all taking a journey on began the historic train from Darwin down to Adelaide. And it's really a story about mothers and daughters and about Mm. family. The way families kind of over time sort of pull apart but then sort of come back together again and, and how they sort of move on and there's a bit of romance in there and there's a little jam making, a lot of uh, great GAN, vicarious travelling. Great. Have you been on the GAN? Yeah, I went on research. Fantastic. (laughs) I took my sister with me and we discovered our inner 80-year-old women because there were loads of (laughs) 80-year-old women on there who were climbing bunks and getting up and down. We were so inspired. We were like, we want to be these people when we're 80. Yeah, it was awesome, really good. And interestingly, when I read, when I listened to that book back on audio, which I love doing because it always sounds different than it sounded in my head, so it always kind of a bit of a, oh, wow, sounds really interesting. Um, I realised about halfway through the book that one of those characters in there is absolutely autistic. <laughs> oh, really? Heard that. And I had no idea. I hadn't done it intentionally, but I just went, oh, man, she's so autistic. So, yeah, I've definitely done that. In your subconscious, see, floating mm. around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And food is also quite a big part of your writing, isn't it, Joe? You're a bit of a foodie. 
Yeah, I do love the food. I do uh, hyper-focus on foods one after the other. And I'm very much, uh, because I am so driven by sensory stuff, I'm very much a method writer in that sense. So whatever food I'm working on, I have to learn how to, you know, I have to eat lots of it, of course, and I have to learn how to make it. And I just do that big, you know, info dump into my brain, everything about it and just dive into it and really love it. So it's a really fun part of my books is the food stuff. Yeah. Did you master the art of jam making? Well, I'm going to, in a, in short, say yes, because I won Great. the Royal Brisbane Show jam making competition for strawberry jam. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's definitely <laughs> method writing for sure. It's a classic. I'd never made jam in my life. And I thought, I need to actually practice if my characters are going to do this. I have to teach myself how to make jam. And because they were competitive jam makers, I thought, well, I'll, I'll get all the paperwork and I'll put it through just just so I understand the process. For the process, yeah. Yeah, it gets delivered and everything. And my sister rang me from the Echo and said, how much do you know if your jam had won? I said, I don't know. It's supposed to send me a certificate or something. She goes, well, I'm standing in front of your jam right now and it's got a blue ribbon on it. And I was just laughed. I just laughed and laughed and laughed. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> oh, I love that. That is gold. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, we can't not have a conversation about horses, Joe. As you mentioned at the beginning, we're both massive horse lovers. Where does your passion for horses come from? Right back to your childhood or? Yes, absolutely. Yep. Uh, That's a very orty thing, that one. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And horse people. Yeah, I don't know. My my mum always said I must have gotten the horse gene from her mother who was, you know, sort of grew up in the country milking cows and stuff and was very... Mm. Very horsey, but there's no one else in my family that's horsey. None, none of them. It's okay. just me. Yeah, so just always, always wanted a horse, and you know, eventually, I mean, my parents just knew nothing about horses. They really didn't. It wasn't their jam, and they didn't know anything. And eventually, of course, they you know sent me to a riding school somewhere, and I just begged and begged and begged, and eventually got a horse. And it was next racehorse, seventeen hand high thoroughbred. Oh, <laughs> uh, big one. And he was so. Well, like in, in hindsight, I was so lucky. He was such a gentleman, really. He was just an amazing horse. And I had him, I think I d- he died when I was like 31. Oh. And I, I didn't know. I was so completely heartbroken. I didn't know if I'd ever get another horse again. And then, of course, yeah. that, I did quite quickly. And I currently have six. One six. is my, yeah, yeah, one's my son's pony, but she's living with a friend of mine at the moment who does equine therapy stuff. Oh, um, so we've got five. I just had one that died just this month. Oh, um, I'm sorry. Sad. It was all, oh. you know, there's nothing better than, there's nothing better than a horse, really. I know. I mean, I the love smell, all animals. The smell yes. of them. They're gorgeous. Oh, my gosh. It? <laughs> it is. It's very tactile. And the wood shavings, mm. like in your stable, yep. shoveling wood shavings. I even love yep. the smell of manure. I know that's I was just going to say the same thing. Most <laughs> <laughs> people understand, and it's completely different from cow manure, which stinks and is yes. horrible. But, and yep. you know, so I'm, I'm driving out in the three bales of hay in the back of my car and I just sit in the car going, I wish someone would make a cologne out of this. <laughs> like it just smells. <laughs> so or a room spray or something. Yeah. I just I just love it. Love everything about all it. of our cars have hay all the way through them. It's, yes, you know, and I know. I forget so. it's there and then I go and pick someone up and think, oh, no, this isn't a horsey person, you know, they're going to think I'm absolutely horrible. But anyway, know, it is what it is. So, Joe, you have started a podcast um, called Autist in Residence. Is that correct? Yes. It's great. Yes. I love that title. It's brilliant. Thank you. I'm not, yeah. I wasn't, there's no grand plans for that or anything. I just felt like I had a lot to say. And mm. this is the thing. Like, I kind of 
oh, you know, it's such an exciting big thing in my life. I want to talk about it a lot and actually no one really wants to talk about it. So no one wants to talk about it, then I just have to talk myself. And I was like, I'll just put it on a podcast and the people who want to listen to it will listen to it, but at least I've verbalised what it is that I want to say. And well, that's done. the beauty of podcasts, isn't it? They're there, everybody can find them, you know, they're evergreen. So Exactly. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So people can find you there for that podcast. And where can people yep. find you online, Joe? You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, just Instagram and Facebook, and my website's josephanelin.com. And uh, yeah, that's all. Yeah. I'm not a Twitter person. Well, thank you so much for coming on to Rights for Women and for sharing all that with us. It's I find it really interesting. And I love that you're proud of the fact that you've had this diagnosis. You know, you mentioned the fact that when you got the diagnosis, it was congratulations, you're autistic. And I think yeah. you're such a fantastic role model for people out there, you know, who maybe, you know, have felt stigmatised and things through the years for, yeah, for, yeah. for being autistic or, or on spectrum or whatever it is so yeah no thank you for that it's it's definitely you know I look at young people and I just go it's not up to them to change the world like we've we've had our time like it's up it's up mm. to us to change it for them you know they don't yeah, need to be that. doing all that heavily heavy lifting while they're also trying to go to school and you know mm. you need to do all, and just start a life you know like it's just yeah it should be there for them to step into so that's yeah. my aim yeah. Thank you and good luck with so the writing much. for the next Thank book. You. We look forward to it. Thanks so much. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at w4wpodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>